The darkest hour of human history, the light of the world has been extinguished. The, the Apostle John put it this way in John 3, 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Without the same kind of explanation, Mark simply declares that darkness came over the land from noon, from midday to three, for those three hours leading up to Jesus' death. He makes no indication that it's simply spiritual darkness, although it was certainly that as well. But it brings to mind a few scriptures, and certainly for the, the Jew and the Hebrew listening to this story, this recount, the, the way that Mark portrays it, uh, some different storylines from Scripture, and light and darkness is a theme that runs throughout Scripture. The prophet Amos, speaking of the coming day of the Lord, and we looked intensely at prophecy, saying this is not only what happened, but what always happened. So there's a repetition to the, the Hebrew Scriptures in the way that they uh, prophesy about the coming days uh, of the Lord. Amos 8, 9 in that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. This also brings to mind the Exodus story, how God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. The ninth plague, the ninth of the ten, was darkness. For three days, darkness fell on that land. Right before the Passover lamb was slain and God's people were delivered. Here, the true lamb of God hangs upon the cross. And right before he dies, darkness falls for three hours, reminding God's people of, of, of light and darkness. Notice that darkness didn't fall when Jesus died. That's when the light returned, indicating that darkness has been defeated through the cross, that what the enemy, represented often by darkness, extinguishing light, what the enemy intended for victory, God made his own victory and defeated the darkness. Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, in Aramaic, and Mark often, with Aramaic terms throughout his gospel, will, will translate that for the reader since not all are fluent in Aramaic. And he says that, this, that Jesus was crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now again, for the, for the Hebrew who knew their scriptures well, this would immediately bring to mind Psalm 22. With the first line of Psalm 22, Jesus was directly quoting in his prayer, in his heart cry. Not that that wasn't real, true anguish from Jesus, the man upon the cross, but he is fulfilling all of the promises of God. And so he is quoting from the first line of Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that would have made the hearers look to the rest of the psalm. What does the rest of that psalm teach? And if you read through Psalm 22 and then read it alongside Mark's description of the, of the crucifixion, you, you will see clearly that he had this in mind, that he wanted to bring to mind the fulfillment of this famous lament psalm. There's many lament psalms uh, throughout the psalms. There's many joyful pra praise psalms as well. And some have both. This one is mostly lament, but ends with a note of hope and promise. 
And clearly that is what's happening upon the cross. Let me read just a few verses from Psalm 22. You're welcome to flip, flip over there and read the whole psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, I'm not silent. Skipping forward to verse seven. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Starting to sound familiar. Verse 16. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. You see how much is being fulfilled according to Mark as he, and, and what Jesus was accomplishing upon the cross. The lament and the longing of that psalm continues. I just find it incredible here that Jesus enters into this lament from another Proclaiming this heart cry to God, Jesus enjoins with it, embraces it, and by doing so, joins with all across history who find themselves suffering, hurting, marginalized, abused, oppressed, and he sanctifies their lament. He makes it holy. Jesus, our God, makes it holy to cry out to God, where are you? Have you abandoned me? I don't sense your presence. How long will I need to cry out for your rescue and your deliver? And if Jesus sanctifies that, it invites all who experience that to cry out in the same way freely. I think so often we try to hide that emotion, that doubt, that pain from God. We try to fix it on our own and then bring only our praises to him our scrubbed down prayers, and that is not what we're invited to through our Lord when we intensely experience that. We can also intercede on behalf of others we know are in these places of desperation and may not even with their voice cry out to God for they feel that he has already abandoned them. We know that Jesus is there in that place. Not only does our God see, he knows, he has experienced this. He has felt this. He is with us. Maybe that's all you need to hear today, that our God sanctifies your lament, your pain, your hurt, your brokenness, and he is with the suffering. He is on the cross for all. Even when we don't feel God is near, he is near. That's the declaration of all of scripture. That's what's happening here in this passage. Not only is God there governing over the sun and the sky, ruling in authority as he always has, in just a moment when Jesus will breathe his last, the curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. This is a massive, almost two-story tall veil, curtain, thick, hung in the temple, separating the first part of the temple with the innermost part of the temple called the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was said to fully dwell in that place upon the Ark of the Covenant, upon that mercy seat between the cherubim. Just as the angels guarded 
the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve were cast out, God's presence still dwelt there in that place in the temple. And there was a veil, a curtain separating that no one could enter into because God's, God's presence was holy and was powerful. And at that moment of Jesus breathing his last, that veil was torn. Now, it seems that God has already left the temple. Jesus had cursed the temple. He'd cut off the religious system that was the temple, and he was redeeming it and making it new. Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. He has come to fully dwell with his people in all places, not restricted to one locale. And so rather than seeing the the curtain being torn as now there's access in for all, although I think we can see it that way, that we can come freely and confidently because of what Jesus has done. Better is to see it as God's presence is released. It is no longer restrained. It is fully in his world because of what Jesus has accomplished. God is fully present. The only way a curtain of that size could be torn from top to bottom would be an act of heaven reaching down. That's the image that is before us. So even though We may feel God's presence is far. He is truly near. This completes kind of that one of those storylines throughout Mark of the presence being with the Jews in the temple to now being with all people, all nations, in all places at all time. The temple is is obsolete. Psalm 22 ends with this kind of declaration. This will be what comes, the psalmist says declares, verse 24, for God has not despised or disdained the suffering or the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to their cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Likely with this psalm fully in mind, as Mark writes of this account, he shows us the first person to believe, to believe in Jesus and his crucifixion in this moment. And it is not a Jew but a Roman soldier, a centurion, one that would be over likely a hundred other soldiers and maybe more. He was overseeing probably everything that was happening. He had the closest proximity to Jesus and maybe even himself partook in and if not partook in the beating and the mocking of Jesus, stood by approving, maybe even callously approving, simply doing his duty. He's the one to become a believer first. Listen to what Mark says, verse 39. When the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw the way that he breathed his last, saw the way that he engaged the suffering, he said, truly, this man is God's son. That declaration from from a Roman was supposed to be absolutely astounding to hear for, for any Jew, that this Roman that would deny completely the God of the Jews is declaring this man hanging upon the cross before him 
having authority over life and death. A man who knew authority and knew power and himself governed over much life witnessed a man who had all authority and declared it ultimately greater than anything he had seen. We don't know the rest of his journey or the rest of his story, but Mark is showing us the fulfillment of Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth, the last and the least, he's been doing that throughout the story, the last and least likely ones to come to believe are the ones that exhibit sometimes the greatest faith. All the ends of the earth will turn to the Lord. All the families of every nation will bow before him. That's the promise. As Mark has done throughout the way that he writes his letter or his treatise, this gospel, he's inviting us to ask questions. Who, who am I in the story? Who are we in the story? We can enter in that way. What's, what's our proximity to the cross? And will we believe? Will I believe? That's what he's been inviting us throughout the story. Who are we? Will we see and believe? Will we hear and understand? Will we see that our God has died for us? Will we follow him? Will we proclaim him as king and Lord, the son of God? Again, in this passage, I'm gonna invite us to enter in through these various characters. I think that's what Mark is doing. While the 12 disciples have now scattered and fled, the ones who had been closest to Jesus for these last years of ministry, they are nowhere to be seen. But who is close? What is the proximity? And that invites us to ask that question. Who am I in this story? What's my proximity to the cross? Many will see and not perceive. Many will hear and not understand. That was the purpose of much of Jesus' parables. Mark tells us that. All the way back in Mark chapter 4, verse 11, he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that, fulfilling the scriptures, they may be ever seen but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. This is, the, this is a declaration of the reality of the hardness of heart or the blindness that people have to the spiritual things, to things of the kingdom. But we, we tune in to that last phrase that even though hardened, even though not perceiving and not understanding, anyone might turn in that moment. And we see the centurion in this moment, one who had clearly been hardened against any ways of God, in that moment turning and declaring the truth. Truly, this is the Son of God. Is that possible? That regardless of who we are or who we aren't or what we've done, even the, the full reality for this Roman centurion, his theological understanding was pretty limited and yet he was expressing in awe a faith in this man who is breathing his last upon the cross before him. The only other declaration of Jesus as the Son in all of Mark is by God the Father at the transfiguration in Mark 9. This is my Son whom I love. Mark means us to see this as a powerful declaration, the only human to say so. All others question 
who Jesus is, his sonship. Remember the high priest, just quite, that was his very question to Jesus. Are you the son of God? Clearly not believing, clearly doubting, challenging. And Jesus says, I am. Jesus declares it. And here's the only other one in all of the gospel to declare Jesus as son, this centurion. The last and least likely. That's incredible hope for any one of us. We could enter the story in that way. This theme of, of seeing but not perceiving, hearing, not understanding is, runs throughout Mark. Mark chapter 8, verse 17. Jesus asked his disciples who had been with him now for years, do you still not see and understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? You know, many heard Jesus cry out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, speaking in Aramaic. Many heard that but did not understand. Some said, oh, he's calling Elijah, likely because in Aramaic, Eloi sounds like the name Elijah. In fact, Jesus was saying, my God. But they misunderstood, which also indicates where their heart and their mind is. He's calling to Elijah to come and save one who was a prophet, was like a son of God, had an incredible relationship with God. But ultimately, we know Elijah cannot save. Only God can save. Many will hear the words of Jesus. Many will hear the gospel and misunderstand like a foreign language. Though hearing, they will not perceive because heart is tuned to other saviors. We do this all the time. We, we believe in Elijah's to save us. Things or people that once were or held power could return and save us. Or any form of Elijah. Maybe it's a certain relationship, the right spouse, our family, our career, our work, our purpose, our comforts, our securities. Anything we turn to, to save, to rescue, to deliver, to give us ultimate meaning and purpose is like in Elijah. Oh, he's calling to Elijah. He's calling to another. We know there's only one who can save, our God who can save. Acts 4.12 says, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given amongst mortals by which we must be saved. So will we cry out to another for rescue, for deliverance, to another Elijah, or will we cry out to our God? Perhaps our hearts have been hardened to spiritual things or merely the ways of the kingdom or the ways of King Jesus. As we've seen throughout this story, Jesus rules and has authority in an antithetical way to the king, kingdoms of the world with their power and their oppression. Jesus initiates his kingdom through service and sacrifice, through giving and through loving, and he does so on the cross. We too can stand with the centurion. For some, this can become our story now. Regardless of what we still fail to truly see, we can perceive to the point where we can declare in Jesus something greater than we see in the world. We can begin that journey or that can become our transformation in this moment. For some of us, we simply need to be reminded that this is our story. Maybe, maybe 
decades ago for some of us. We were on our own path, doing our own thing, maybe even doing well in that, earning positions of power or influence or prestige, when somehow, by the grace of God, he got our attention. He stood before us. There he was before us, getting our attention. And while we maybe even tried to extinguish this light and turn from it, he would not let us. He beheld us, and he saved us. And that became our story. May we be reminded of that if that is our story. Regardless of what we have done, forgiven by the blood of Christ, he orchestrated that moment for us where our eyes were truly opened and things were forever changed. Now, for some, we need God to do that for the first time. Now, God, would you open our eyes in that way, open our heart? If we have misheard the gospel in any way, would you make it clear to us today that this would be our story, that truly we would see Jesus, the Son of God, that we would receive his kingdom, repent, turn from the ways of the world, the ways we simply naturally walk. That's a turning. Repentance is such a gift to be able to see error and turn right. We are invited to that, to walk in the ways of the cross, to see that even through death comes life. It's the way of the kingdom, and it's the hope that we have. We're invited in this to take up our cross as we see Jesus on the cross. Probably the, the center point of the gospel of Mark, of the, of the call to follow Jesus is Mark eight thirty four. He called all of the crowd and his disciples. That means for the hearer, all of us. Anyone are within, within sound of his voice, within sound of this word, he calls all and says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And it comes to the point right here as Jesus hangs upon the cross as we see the centurion. And in fact, actually, I want to back up just a little bit in the story to the passage we read last week and look at Simon of Cyrene. Simon, a passerby, it says, was forced to carry the cross of Jesus. This is verse 21 of Mark 15. They compelled, this would be the Roman soldiers, they compelled a passerby who was coming in from the, the country to carry the cross. It was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. The only reason Mark would add that kind of detail is some of you will know who this is. <laughs> Go hear his story if you want, is the invitation. We don't have that same luxury. Then they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the school. That's all we see in this, in this account. But what Mark wants us to see, remembering that center call of take up your cross and carry it, where are the 12 disciples? They are nowhere. They're not on the road. They're not waiting to help, to be right there, to be present. They have already said no, not only to their own cross, but to the cross of Jesus. And they have scattered. And here's Simon simply passing by, who becomes a truer disciple in this moment. The cross touches him in a way that it doesn't touch anyone else in history. Can you imagine that? He becomes like the true disciple, actually bearing the cross. Now, clearly Jesus was speaking figuratively, spiritually, though many would truly be asked to give their life for the gospel. He's inviting all disciples. What will it cost us to lay down everything that the world says is the is, is, the, is true life, to be willing to walk away from that into the kingdom and the ways of the kingdom. Daily, that's taking upon us our cross, what it may cost us, our full life in order to gain eternal life. 
But in this way, Simon becomes the, the picture of the true disciple. Now, perhaps he was forced to do so by the Roman authorities. Perhaps he was willing. We're not told what, what his interaction was or his heart state was. God will never demand the cross or press it upon us. He invites us to bear it up. He invites us to follow in that way, that cruciform way of life. Ironically, the world will lay upon us far greater weight and burden that will ultimately lead to death, while the way of the cross of willingly taking up a cruciform life will lead to eternal life. Will we enter the story through Simon? Do we find ourselves in this moment of a chance to bear up under the cross? Will we humbly yet boldly say yes to the way of the cross? We could also enter to this story through Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 42, when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, so be the evening of a Friday, as the sun went down, Sabbath would begin for the, for the Jews and run for those 24 hours until sundown of Saturday, Shabbat, Sabbath. So they're preparing, they're right, they're making all their preparations for no work, so they have, they have food and they can be together as family. It's a regular rhythm, it's the preparation day. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, this would be the Sanhedrin, the ruling, ruling council of the Jews. He himself was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God, so he went boldly to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. This says Joseph was a part of the council that had brought Jesus before the high priest and before Pilate, the beginning of chapter 15. As soon as it was morning, the chief priest held the consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. That would indicate that Joseph is a part of these proceedings to falsely accuse Jesus, to bring his arrest, and ultimately call for his crucifixion. So was Joseph simply silent in the proceedings? The Sanhedrin would have been 70 members, right? So maybe not everyone had a voice, but he kept his voice quiet. Perhaps he too is like the centurion and his eyes aren't truly opened to Jesus until this moment. He's simply been longing for something greater in the kingdom than what he has experienced, than what's passed, been passed on to him. We don't know. Perhaps he was a covert disciple of Jesus and didn't know how he could do anything and at that point wasn't willing to take up his cross for what it would cost him. For when the word says he went boldly to Pilate, I don't believe it's out of fear of Pilate and what Pilate would do. Pilate seemed very disinterested and wanted the whole situation to go away. In fact, he's surprised that Jesus has already died. Crucifixion was meant to inflict torture for up to days for those hanging upon the cross. So for Jesus to have yielded his life, which is truly what happened, within hours was surprising to Pilate. No, Joseph's boldness was he was walking away from the Sanhedrin. His boldness was, I am no longer associated with the Sanhedrin, my highest position, what I've worked my whole life for. I am boldly going to Pilate and associating myself with the death of Jesus and his burial. His life is radically transformed. Now that's bold, to walk away from everything that would have been his identity to that point when he still wasn't fully clear the, the resurrection has not happened yet. He's simply walking by faith in this point. What he recognizes is there's more life 
in this dead corpse of Jesus than there was in the religious system that he had supported his entire life, that had been passed on to him. I think we can resonate at times. He looks to the temple and sees that it is empty and devoid of the presence of God, and he looks to Jesus and sees life and sees hope and is drawn in. But that is bold. That is bold to walk away from all that he knew. It seems that he is progressively coming to faith, as many were. Jesus has not risen from the dead. He has died, and perhaps, perhaps that has accomplished a victory, a saving in this upside-down way. Remember, he had foretold of his resurrection, but none seemed to believe it. Mark shows throughout his story a progressive coming of faith, and that gives us hope. As Austin reminded us of the the incredible prayer by the desperate father in Mark 9, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. That's That's our whole story. We grow in faith, but God, help us. I have such doubt, too, within me. Strength and grow. The picture of Jesus when he healed the, the first blind man in the story, Mark 8, 24, and he, he, he spit and did something, whether he put the saliva on his eyes, we, we looked at that story months ago, but he said, do you see? And the blind man said in verse 24, I see people, they, they look like trees walking around. I'm not sure how he knew what trees looked like if he was blind, perhaps he um, had some indication Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened fully. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus wasn't lacking power or the ability to heal in a moment. He did that in other times. This is a metaphor. This is a picture of spiritual blindness to to seeing. And sometimes it's progressive. Sometimes, just like I believe Joseph here, he doesn't have the full story, but he knows there's more life in Jesus than there is in the system. And he walks in faith boldly. Perhaps that's our story or that's the invitation for us to walk away from the ways of life that we've developed, our rhythms, our disciplines, our previous beliefs, our values, or even our position and our status, the declarations and vows that we've made that we see are no longer true. There may not be anything more difficult than being middle-aged or older, and declaring everything I've set the course of my life for is wrong. That's bold to declare that, and humble, to say, I now see truth. My eyes are beginning to be opened. But the change that that requires, what that may cost us, could be significant, as I believe it was for Joseph But if we know, if we see that there's more life in Jesus than anything this world has to offer, how could we do anything but draw near, follow, proclaim? Jesus is worth losing everything else to gain what can never be lost. Will we enter through Joseph? And finally, will we enter through the women who continue to follow Jesus Verse 40, there were also women looking on from a distance, Mary of Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph, Joseph and Salome. These are just a few of the women. They used to follow Jesus and provided for a moment when he was in Galilee. And there were many other women 
who had come up with him to Jerusalem. This was intentionally to be a contrast to where are the 12 men? They're not there. Throughout Mark, he takes, he's very intentional to elevate and honor women as true disciples of Jesus. And in the next chapter, some of these same women will be the first to hear that he is risen and to be told to be the first apostles. Go and proclaim Jesus is alive. Go and proclaim it. They still struggle with their own doubt and fear. They too are progressing in their faith. And we see that they too are following Jesus at a distance. This reminds us of uh, of chapter 14, verse 54, and how Peter had followed Jesus at a distance into the courtyard, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the guards. He's outside while Jesus is inside. He's at a distance while he used to be close. He's drifted, he's withdrawn. And we see the same phrase here. The women were at a distance, watching, observing. But they were there. We commend them, they are there. They have not fled. In fact, it's likely for these women that they they were as close as they were allowed to be to the cross. It wasn't their fear. It was they were not allowed to be any closer. Through the systems of oppression or simply for fear of the mob that may happen at the foot of the cross if the Romans didn't keep the peace. So there they are, but you can see this tension, I'm sure, wanting to do something Feeling torn, not knowing how or what could they even do. Grief-stricken as they watch their closest friend, the greatest man they've ever known, ultimately who would become their savior, the son of God, being killed upon the cross. Can you feel that? We should feel it again. Can we enter in? And yet they are watching they're mere observers. They don't know what to do or what they can do. And if, if, that's, if that's us today, and I think that does resonate with many, at once we were close. We were close, intimate followers of Jesus. And somehow, unexpectedly, through circumstances that we didn't see coming, we find ourselves at a distance. The closeness is removed. We're now looking upon our Jesus with new eyes, Not everything has fallen together again. Maybe we have more doubts than we ever had before, more questions than we ever had before. How could this be the way? Maybe we don't know what to do to draw close again or what that would look like. If you sense that that palpable distance from your Savior, I don't have clear answers for you. Sometimes that is the journey of the disciple. Sometimes that tension grows in us longing and hunger that nothing else can. God will use it, but we also know God's desire is for us to be close. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What does that look like? How can I come close? I feel so restricted. I feel unable. I will encourage us all. One, we're not alone. I think this is the story of, of any genuine disciple times of incredible intimacy, times where we knew it, we knew the truth, we had very little doubt, we have seen miracles. And other times, even sometimes that next day, we wonder about it all. Oh, our doubt, Lord, help us. We believe, help our unbelief. It's very real. It's honest. It's true. Jesus knows it. But I invite you, stay present. 
Stay close. Keep your eyes fixed to the cross. Perhaps a miracle that you never expected is coming in just a few days. Perhaps new life through death is on the horizon. Perhaps the opportunity, the clear opportunity to draw near and be close again is a moment away. Perhaps that's our moment today, even now. However we enter the story most easily, through Simon, through the centurion, through Joseph, through these women, disciples, likely in some measure through all of them, I think that's what Mark is inviting us all as we hear again. What's your proximity to the cross, to Jesus? Who are you? Because everyone can be saved. Because Jesus is on that cross for everyone who looks to him. The last and the least. The ones who have been close and have withdrawn. And even as we'll see in the story, the disciples who are nowhere here will be called back, saved and commissioned by the power of the risen Lord. Behold your Savior, your King, the Son of God, on the cross for you and for me. May we respond with worship and amazing gratitude today.